A warm welcome to you all this morning. Let's go ahead and open up to Philippians 2, verse 6. One of the great privileges... How does my mic sound? It sounds a little loud. One of the great privileges I have with serving as the pastor here is I get to study the Bible a lot and it truly is a privilege. While you're out working, you're paying for me to sit in my posh, comfortable office to study the Bible. And it is a tremendous privilege to do that and I greatly thank you for giving me that privilege. And every week I dive into certain passages and I try to discern what it is that God wants me to say on Sunday mornings. Now some passages touch me in ways that others don't. There's sometimes before I study a passage, I have a feeling or thought about how I think the sermon will go and how I think the passage will touch me and impact me. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes I study a passage and it ends up being just about how I thought it would be. Now other times, I'll study a passage and my conclusions at the end will be different than how I thought they would be at the beginning. And sometimes a passage will touch me in a way that other passages don't. I think that's common for all of us. I'll have some of you come up and tell me, wow, that that sermon really spoke to me. And other weeks, the sermon might not. And that's okay, that's natural. Some passages of scripture will touch us more than others. And the passage that we're going to study this morning has impacted me in a way that I did not foresee. This has been the most impactful passage I've studied. This, I've thought about this passage throughout the week. Now, I usually do that, but I've done that more throughout this week. And the way this passage has touched me is this passage has shown me what it is that Jesus has done for me in a way that I failed to appreciate. Specifically, what this passage has shown me is the depths of humiliation that Jesus went to, went through for me. What it is that Jesus suffered for me is far worse than I thought before. I've never felt Jesus' suffering and his death on the cross more in my whole life than I have this week. And it's from this passage. What Paul says to us here is truly horrible. What it is that Christ has done for us far exceeds what it is that I perceived. And my hope is that this week, this morning, that you will be touched in in the same way that I've been touched. That you would see Jesus Christ, you would see his beauty, his grace, his divinity, his goodness and kindness, and you would see what it is that he has done for you. The depths of humiliation that he went to to save you from your sins. That's the idea that we're going to be unpacking this morning. And that's what Paul talks about. And it's difficult to preach this because it is so difficult, the concepts, what it is that Christ has done, the degree of his humiliation and suffering. It's, it's hard to communicate that. It's difficult to bear that, to think about that. 
But that's what Paul talks about here. And we have to be faithful to the passage. And as we see Jesus' humiliation, we will also see his love. What it is that he has done for us and why we have to follow him. So those are kind of my thoughts and feelings about this passage. Let's go ahead and read it. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Who, verse 6, this who is Jesus, is Christ Jesus. Look right before verse 6. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's the passage. And the framework is this, the way I want you to understand this passage. This passage is a story. Paul is telling us a story of what Christ has done. And the story can be thought of as a ladder. But rather than going from the bottom of the ladder to the top, you think climbing the corporate ladder, what we do is we start at the bottom at the beginning of our career and we climb the top. Hopefully that's where we end, is at the climax of our career. We have the best job, we have the best pay. Rather than that, this ladder is flipped upside down. Christ does not start at the bottom here. He starts at the top. So verse 6, we're going to see the top of this ladder. And then he takes three steps down this ladder. And where he ends is this statement at the end of verse 8. Even death on a cross. So we're going to start very high this morning. This ladder reaches into the heavens. And then this ladder takes us to the depths of human suffering and torment. And we're going to take this ladder. There's going to be four parts to this ladder, four steps. There's four steps, there's four parts to Jesus' humiliation. Those are the steps that we're going to cover. And each step is a further step of Jesus humbling himself and humiliating himself for us. So let's start at the top. This passage takes us into the heavens. Verse 6. Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So for the first point this morning, the first step, write this. Step one is this. This is where Paul begins the story of Jesus' humiliation. Write this. Christ, as the pre-existent, Son of God. That's a mouthful. I'll repeat it again. Christ, step one, the top part of this ladder is Christ as the preexistent Son of God. So Jesus starts at the very top. This, this passage presents us with a picture of Jesus as divine. That prior to his incarnation, prior to his birth, that the Son of God existed. And he existed as God himself. That's what we see in this passage. There's two verbs in verse 6. Look with me there. Though he was, that's a verb. 
he was in the form of God. And then the second verb is did not count. So there's two verbs. So I want us to think about the time frame of these verbs. The way I want us to understand verse 6 is by thinking about when did these verbs, when did Jesus do these actions? That's the question I want to answer. And this passage presents us a sequence of events. So look in verse 7. Verse 7 mentions Jesus emptying himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Now for all of us, the first event of our lives is to be born. There's no pre-existence of souls. We're all born at a time, and that's when our life begins. But with Jesus, it's different. There are verbs that Jesus does prior to being born. Prior to verse 7, there's another verse, and that's verse 6. This emptying himself, as we will explore in verse 7, is a reference to Jesus taking on humanity, him becoming incarnate. But prior to that, Jesus does certain things. He exists prior to his incarnation. And that's what's mentioned in verse 6. And this, these verbs that he does, that he executes, you see this verb was? That's not something he does, that's something that he is. He has this state of being. He has this state of being prior to his birth. And the state of being is describing his pre-existent divinity. We believe as Christians that Jesus is not just a moral teacher, but that Jesus himself is God in the flesh. And as God in the flesh, he had a prior life. He had a life prior to his incarnation. And verse 6 is describing that prior life, that life prior to his incarnation. Verse 6 is describing events that happen prior to verse 7. If verse 7 speaks of his birth, then that means that Jesus existed before his birth. And there's a positive and negative statement in verse 6. He was in the form of God. Your translation might say, being in the form of God. And once again, this is stressing Jesus' preexistence, his existence prior to his birth. And Jesus existed in the form of God. You see that there, verse 6? In the form of God. Now this word for form also shows up in verse 7. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form. The Greek word here is morphe. In verse 6, he was, past tense, he was in the morphe of God. He was in the form of God. And then verse 7, he took on the morphe, the form of man. Excuse me, the form of a servant. Now these two ideas are contrasting with one another. In verse 7, it's talking about his humanity. He takes this on. He brings on upon himself humanity. And in verse 6, whenever it says he existed in the form of God, it's referring to his deity. Jesus is the God-man. He's the Son of God. That's what it's talking about. 
And as the Son of God, he was not a selfish being. And that's what we get with this negative statement. So the positive statement is that he, though he existed, or he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, if you have a King James Version, your passage mentions robbery. The reason why there's a difference between the King James and the ESV here is because this noun is difficult to translate. It's difficult to understand. But what it's referring to here is Jesus' selflessness. Being in the form of God, Jesus had the privileges and the rights that God the Father had. Jesus had not just the, not, not only was he divine, but he had all of the rights and privileges that came with being a divine being. But what Jesus did is that he did not insist upon those rights and privileges. That's what Paul is talking about here when it says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus did not insist upon his own way. Touching the passage that we referenced last week, Philippians 2.4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what Jesus did. He did not look to his own interests, to his own rights, to his own privileges as the divine son of God. He did not insist upon those rights and privileges. But rather, he sought to obey the Father. He sought to meet our needs of salvation. Jesus is not a selfless, selfish being. Rather, he's selfless. He insists not upon his rights, but upon the rights of others. And verse 6 is mentioning this selfless posture in eternity past prior to his incarnation. So that's the beginning of the ladder. That's the very top point. Jesus is preexistent. Jesus is the divine son of God. But Jesus is not selfish. He does not insist upon his own rights. So that's where we start. And the next step, the next point, is found in verse 7. And that is Christ's incarnation. Christ's incarnation. So we're following the story that Paul is describing here. And we're taking steps down this ladder. Christ's incarnation. This is step two. Go ahead and write that if you're taking notes. And Jesus, because of his sympathy for us, because of his love, dear friend, for you, Jesus came to this earth. Jesus did not insist upon his own rights. He had every right to say, I am not going to suffer for them. Jesus is under no obligation to come and save us, dear friend. We don't deserve it. And so therefore, he has no obligation to do that. But that's not what he chose to do. We are here to celebrate him. We are here to celebrate what it is that he has done for us out of his infinite compassion and empathy for us. And the next step is his incarnation. Jesus chooses of his own will to take upon himself full humanity. 
verse 7. He did, not count, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. All of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8 is a reference to Jesus' incarnation, when God became man. That's what it's referencing. And to do this, when Jesus did this, this was an emptying of himself. That's how Paul speaks of it here at the beginning of verse 7. He emptied himself. Now, dear friends, that does not mean that Jesus emptied himself of deity. When he was on this earth, Jesus remained divine. He did not give up his deity. What he gave up, what he emptied himself of, was the privileges and rights as a divine being. He gave those up. The King James does a wonderful job here. It, said, it says this, the King James states that Jesus made himself of no repute. Jesus made himself of no reputation. That though he was divine, though he is the most precious being to ever visit us here on earth, he did not insist upon his own way. He did not insist upon his rights. He came not to be served, dear friend, but to serve. He gave up his rights. He gave up his privileges. He gave up all of the rights that he had for you. He emptied himself of these rights. And Paul describes three ways that he did this. By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and by being found in human form. All of these prepositional phrases are modifying this verb, emptied. Let's take the first one, by taking the form of a servant. If, you're, if you have an ESV, what you will notice is that ESV has a little one above the servant. And if you look down at the ESV at the bottom, it says, or slave. Or slave, and then it has a note about why the ESV chose a servant. We've covered this word a number of times on Sunday mornings. This word behind the English word servant is doulos. If there's one word I want, one Greek word I want you to get, it's this word. It, it occurs a number of times, and it really synthesizes what Christ has done for us. Doulos. And a doulos is a more drastic term than just a servant. A servant has the option of not insisting upon his own rights. But a slave doesn't. And Jesus didn't just become a servant for us. He became a doulos. He became a slave for you. Not just a servant. A slave. And he took on this. He took this upon himself. This taking on the form of a slave is humanity. In order for the Son of God to suffer, in order for the Son of God to save you from your sins, the incarnation was necessary. Jesus cannot suffer without bringing upon himself humanity. And the way humanity is described here 
is this morphe of a doulos, the form of a slave. Mark 10, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Jesus did in his incarnation. And then Paul mentions being born in the likeness of men. Yours might say being made in the likeness of men. It's referring to the same idea. It's referring to Jesus' birth, what we celebrate at Christmas. And this likeness of men is a reference to the idea that Jesus was like us in every way, yet except sin. Jesus was like us in every way. He suffered the same sicknesses. He suffered some of the same confusions, discouragements, depressions, anxieties. All of the failings of humanity, Jesus himself was personally acquainted with. Yet he was without sin. That's what Paul is saying here. And by taking on the full nature of humanity at the beginning of verse 8, it says, in being found in human form. This is another way of saying that Jesus became a man. He was incarnated. That he took upon himself the form of a slave, the form of a doulos. So verse 6 mentions at the very top, he's eternal, preexistent, power, his divinity. And then Paul begins to chart his humiliation. The next step is flesh, taking upon what it is that you and I have, bodies, a brain, a mind, human nature. And by doing this, he enters into the realm of sickness, of temptation, of suffering, and ultimately, the incarnation, what it is, why it is, the incarnation was necessary, was so that he could die. All of these verses are built upon one another. The way we get to verse 8, it mentions his death, is based upon verse 7, his incarnation. And his incarnation assumes verse 6. So there's a sequence here. There's a chronological sequence. And also there's a logical sequence. Every point is built on the preceding one. So he came here to serve. He visited this world. He resided in this world to serve you. And to die for you. To bring upon him, himself flesh human nature, and ultimately to suffer and die. And this is the third step. So the second step is Christ's incarnation, and the third step is Christ's death. Christ's death. Verse 8. And being found in human form, and having taken upon himself human flesh, and having become incarnate, he humbled himself. And how did he humble himself? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now this 
verse, verse 8, addresses one of the central objections that non-Christians have to Christianity. And that objection is this, central to our confession, central to what we believe as Christians, is what John Wesley said, that thou, my God, should die for me. We believe that God himself was on that tree in Calvary. We believe that God himself was suffering for the sins of the world. We believe that God died. Now that's a quite perplexing thought, isn't it? And many non-Christians reject Christianity because of that claim. And the reasons are this. How is it that God himself, the being who is immutable, he does not change, he cannot be harmed, he's eternal and all-powerful, how is it that that being can die? It's a powerful objection. And this is the answer. The answer is that verse 8 is preceded by verse 7. Paul does not mention verse 6 and then proceed to verse 8. He does not start with Jesus' preexistence and then move to Jesus dying. There's a step in between there. And what is that step? That's verse 7. That's the second rung in the ladder of humiliation. That is Jesus' incarnation. As Christians, whenever we affirm that God died on the cross, what we are saying is that the Son of God who was incarnate died on the cross. Not the Father. We're not saying that. We are saying that because of verse 7, because of Jesus bringing upon himself humanity, a human body, that therefore now he is able to suffer. And not only is he able to suffer, he does suffer. So the incarnation, Jesus bringing upon himself humanity, addresses that objection. The reason why as Christians we can affirm that God in Christ suffered on, on the cross was because that Jesus himself was perfectly man. He was human. He was just like you and I. And his humanity made it possible for him to suffer. Now to think of that thought, to think of the thought that God died for your sins. That the God-man died for you is a thought that's hard to compute. It's hard to understand that. And the motive, the reason why he did that for you, Paul mentions here, verse 8 again, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus' death was an outworking of his obedience. The Father and the Son 
agreed prior to his incarnation that the Son would accomplish his mission here on this earth. And the Father gave him a task. The Father gave him commandments to obey. And as a man, he had to obey these commandments. And his desire was to please his heavenly Father. His desire was to accomplish the mission that he gave, that the Father gave him. And Paul emphasizes that here by becoming obedient. Jesus was obedient. He was the divine Son of God who became a man and who ultimately obeyed to the point of death. That's the third step. And the fourth step, the most gruesome step, the hardest step to swallow is right at the end of verse 8. Even death on a cross. Now this is not an unimportant detail, friend. This is not unimportant. This reaches to the very depths of his humiliation for you. And it's important to understand what exactly the cross represented in the ancient world. As Christians today, we wear crosses around our necks, which we should. The cross has become the symbol of Christianity. That's oftentimes how we know whether someone is a Christian. Is the cross? Are they wearing a cross? Do they support the cross? Our cro crosses are in churches. They're everywhere. Now, there are other symbols as well, but the cross really has become the central symbol of Christianity. But in the ancient world, things were very different. The cross was not seen as a celebration of victory and of identity. In the Greco-Roman world, the cross was the most degradating thing that could be inflicted upon a human. The cross was seen as the ultimate demise of someone. We don't really have a symbol or representation of the cross in our day. The cross was something reserved for non-Romans. If a Roman committed some crime that was deserving of execution, they would behead them. The cross was reserved for non-Romans, and specifically those of the, slave, of the slave type or foreigners. If a slave or foreigner did something wrong that the Romans believed deserved execution, they'd put them on a cross. And one of the ancient Roman orators, Cicero, he said this of the cross. The cross is a most cruel and disgusting punishment. It is the worst extreme of the tortures inflicted upon slaves. There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed as crucifixion. You can't get worse than this in humanity. There is no worse form of punishment. It was reserved for the lowest class and those who did the worst types of crimes. 
And there's also another context working here. It's the context of the Old Testament. The cross in the first century, the Jews believed that the cross was a sign of God's curse. That whoever died on the cross was under God's curse. Listen to this passage in Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. To die on a tree in the Old Testament was a sign and symbol of God's curse upon someone. Now let's connect the dots here. We have Jesus Christ being the divine Son of God. He took on human flesh and He lived for you a life of perfection. He never sinned. He was never mean. He was never unjustly angry. He never lusted. He never lied. He was never selfish. His whole life was in complete obedience to the Father. And he died. And not only did he die, he died on a cross. The perfect Son of God hanging on a cross. A slave dying in the ancient world by hanging on a cross. The matchless Son of God descended deep, deep, deep down into the, into the darkest hellhole of human suffering. That's what Paul is teaching here. This is very hard to internalize. The depths of Jesus' suffering in light of the heights of His goodness and glory is hard to fathom. And I oftentimes throughout the week was disturbed by this. And this is the picture and feeling that Paul wants us to have. And the reason why he wants us to have this feeling and picture is because this is what happened. This is the truth. And whenever we look at the cross, we see two realities. The first reality that we see is our own sins. There's a correspondence and a symmetry between our depravity and the gruesomeness of the cross. The reason why the cross was as horrible as it was is because we are as bad as we are. Dear friends, the sin in mine and your hearts 
reaches to the depths of hell. It's hard to see this. It's hard to feel this. But in light of the perfection of God, we are truly bad. And not just bad. We are evil. One of the biggest lies in society is believing that man is naturally good. Dear friends, Scripture teaches a very different idea. Scripture teaches that we, by nature, are evil. We lie, we cheat, we're selfish, we commit adultery, we steal, we have thoughts that no one knows about, that are detestable. Our sins are tremendous. Even the best one of us, our sins are tremendous. And that's why Jesus had to descend to the point of humiliation that he had to, was because of the reality of human sin. He brought all of this upon himself. That's the first thing that it shows us. And the second idea that it shows us is his love. Yes, you are a sinner. Yes, your sins separate you from God. No, you do not deserve salvation. But God shows forth His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died so that you can be forgiven of all of your sins. We have committed many sins. We have committed many dark and heinous sins. But the Bible tells us that because of Jesus' love for us, He descended to the depths of humiliation to wash away your sins. And brothers and sisters, he did this because he loves you. The way I want to end this morning is a bit unique. We haven't done this before. I want to open up at the end of this service an opportunity for you to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I imagine that many of you in here do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. There has not been a time in your life where you've truly and totally given your life over to Jesus. I want to present you with an opportunity to do that. And also I want to present you an opportunity that if you have done this, if you have been saved from your sins but your life is not right with Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to respond as well. And what we're going to do is that Jesse is going to come up and sing a song. And me and two other elders will be up here to talk to you. To talk to you about your soul. To talk to you about your sins and the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And you can also come up here and pray at the footsteps of the stage. 
or you can pray in your, at your seat, whatever you prefer. But dear friends, I urge you, I plead with you to look at Jesus Christ, to look at the degree of humiliation that he went through for you and to respond. 